Hello everyone and welcome to the Unanswered Questions True Crime Podcast. I have spent hours and hours investigating this. He basically told her that people have been killed. Journalists, independent investigators, people like that disappeared. It frightened her to the bone. There's more to the story than meets the eye. There were rumors of torture and homicide and sexual abuse, all sorts of egregious, horrendous crimes. He was polygraphed three times. Each of those three showed evasions. His resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world, and particularly mad at the government. The study that he commissioned that described a fictional terrorist attack. If people have died over this, it means you're getting close to the truth. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, what the fuck? Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about Greg Meisner. Greg Meisner, 18, was hanged in his bedroom in the Meisner family home in Hawley, Minnesota in the early hours of January 5th of 1998. Between $40 to $70 was missing from his wallet. At 8am, Sharon Meisner returned home from working the night shift at a retirement centre to find her beautiful boy, who had been asleep in bed when she left the house, fully dressed but barefoot and strung up like a piece of meat on his closet door. She touched his leg and he came tumbling down on top of her. That's when she saw that his hands were tied behind his back. She phoned 911 and told them, and I quote, Somebody's murdered my baby, end quote. Clay County Detective Brian Green didn't even wait for the coroner to arrive before proclaiming Greg's death as a suicide. Police went to the high school to inform students that Greg committed suicide even before Sharon's husband Steve, who was away on business, could be reached with the news. By 10.30am, the Meisner home was flooded with hysterical teenagers. Sharon attempted to get the police to seal off the scene, but they refused to do so, unbelievably telling her, quote, "'This wasn't television.'" End quote. They also refused to take prints, and when she discovered unexplained vomit in Greg's toilet, she told them she hadn't flushed and that she was sorry, but she didn't want to destroy evidence. Detective Green totally ignored her, pleading to take it out. Among the spectators, the police allowed to contaminate the crime scene was Sean Padden, who was 23 years old. Although Greg's parents didn't know it at the time, Padden, an acquaintance of Greg's who had moved to Hawley just four months earlier, had been involved in criminal activities that local law enforcement was well aware of. In fact, just three days earlier, to escape prosecution for manufacturing of a controlled substance, drunk and disorderly conduct, and assaulting Special Agent Tom Taylor, Padden had signed a secret agreement with Detective Green to work for the Sheriff's Office as a confidential drug informant. Over the next few days, a number of teenagers contacted both Greg's parents and the police with information implicating Patton and Greg's death. Among those was a girl who signed a written statement that Patton had once, and I quote, said that he killed some guy by hitting him in the back of the head and knocking him out. Then he tied something around his neck and hung him, left him to hang and left a suicide note. He printed it on the computer so they couldn't trace his handwriting. He said that Greg drove him there, but he didn't know anything about it. He was into horror movies, Scream, and Last Summer. He said he wanted to do that, kill people and be mysterious. He said that he could take a human life and not feel remorse about it. He said that he would go over to Girls Redacted House, kill her right now and not feel sorry about it. That's someone that he loved. He was always asking me if he looked psycho. He wanted to scare people. He said that if he wanted to kill someone, he would hang them and knock over a chair and make it look like a suicide. 
end quote. He told her that he had done that once himself and gotten away with it. Quote, then in a completely clear and serious voice, he said, how do you know I didn't do it? How do you know I wasn't the one who killed Greg? I could have, you know. He said it with no waver in his voice, like someone who had been crying would have done. One night on the phone, we were talking about the past. I asked him about this because he never told me anything. And he said, if you knew about my past, you would hate me. I've done some terrible things. And I was just talking to him and asking him to tell me one thing. And he said, fine, I killed someone. Are you happy? Don't say anything to anyone. That same day, Sean showed me the pic from the internet. He told me he had freaked Greg out. He said he brought Greg into his bedroom and he had a chair pushed up against his closet door and he told Greg to stand on it. Then he put a rolled up towel around Greg's neck and pushed the chair out from under him. He said he let him down and Greg was mad and left. He was mad that Sean had done that to him. Sean was laughing when he told me. He thought it was funny. End quote. Even more serious was another girl who told police that Patton had bound her wrists, blindfolded her and threatened to kill her. Quote, over and over, he has lines from it memorized. Another night when I was at his house, he said he had a surprise for me. He brought me into his bedroom and tied a necktie around my eyes so I couldn't see. Then he wanted to tie my hands behind my back. I told him no, I didn't want my hands tied. He tied them anyway, but in front of me. He didn't tie them normal. He tied one hand first, then the other, then he tied them both together. He said it was when you struggle, it is impossible to get them undone. I got mad and I took the tie off my eyes and I was trying to get my hands undone. I could only get as far as getting them apart. Both were still tied and connected by the necktie. Sean called Monday, January 5th around 8pm. He told me he went over to Meisner's and he saw Greg. He described the room saying he saw Greg hanging by the closet with his clothes on, even shoes but no socks. He said there was a chair tipped over. He was sort of crying and saying it was his fault and that he had let this happen to Greg. End quote. A third girl who alleged that she had been sexually assaulted by Patton said Patton had bragged to her that he had been at Greg's house after Sharon had left for work at midnight and that he was the last person to see Greg alive. Two other teenagers told police that about a month earlier Greg had visited Patton's apartment and Patton had thrown something around his neck and dragged him over a door. They said Chris Hawkins, 25, Patton's best friend and next door neighbour, was there at the time and did nothing but watch. During the viewing at the funeral home, Greg's mother noticed that Greg's hair had been parted on the wrong side. When she pushed it over to the left, she discovered a scabbed wound on the top right side of his head. She screamed and pointed it out to the people around her. Greg had apparently been knocked unconscious before he was strung up. That evening, officials from three different law enforcement agencies came to the Meisner home to inform Greg's parents that they had interviewed Patton. While denying that he had anything to do with Greg's death, Patton had described to police the hanging incident from a month earlier, except that his story was that Greg had stood on the chair to hang himself and that Greg had come up with the idea and enjoyed doing it. When Greg's parents told police about the wound they discovered on Greg's head, Special Agent Pete Graber from the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension told them the wound had most likely occurred during the autopsy. Greg's mum informed him that she knew from classes in nursing that people don't bleed and scab after they'd been dead for 36 hours and put in refrigeration. Not one officer went to look at the wound and the autopsy report gave the cause of death as accidental. Two weeks later, Graber and Green finally returned to the Meisner's home to get the chair on which Greg supposedly stood with bare feet when he hanged himself. They used that opportunity to try and get Greg's mum to state that she had seen rope burns on Greg's neck on other occasions. She told them over and over that never ever did she see a rope burn on her son's neck. Graber's report, interestingly enough of that interview, states, Sharon Meisner noticed rope burns on Greg's neck summer of 97, end quote. 
A few days later, while cleaning Greg's room, Greg's mother Sharon discovered an open bottle of Mountain Dew soda pop in a cubicle of his desk. The bottle contained two Marlboro Red cigarette butts. Greg did not smoke. She called police chief Mark Hansen to her home to give him this new piece of evidence. When she tried to point out to Hansen the places where Stephen Hur had touched the bottle, he said, and I quote, don't worry about that, and proceeded to pass the bottle back and forth between his ungloved hands. Now my prints are on it too. End quote. Hansen told them this with a smile. Sharon literally beat her head against the wall, at which point both parents were again informed that a real police investigation, quote, is not like it's done on TV, end quote. On February 27th, police directed the forensic lab to cancel the testing of the clothing that Greg was wearing when he died and to cancel tests on the vomit sample from his toilet. Their explanation to his parents for this was that vomit doesn't contain DNA, although an attorney told them it most certainly does. At Padden's trial, Agent Graber perjured himself by stating under oath that the lab did DNA tests on the vomit with negative results. Now we get into Agent Peter Graber testifies at Sean Padden's trial that he had the lab do DNA testing on the vomit from Greg's bathroom. Question. During the investigation, was there vomit found in the Meisner residence? Answer. Yes, sir, there was. Question. Where was that? Answer. In the bathroom area. Question. And did you attempt to get this analyzed at the lab? Answer. Yes, sir, we did. Question. What was the result? Answer. It was negative. End quote. On May 18th, police also withdrew their request for latent print examination of the chair, so there was no way of knowing whether Greg did or didn't stand on it. On June 3rd of 1998, Sean Patton was indicted on three charges of third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. In other words, the grand jury's finding was that Patton didn't mean to kill Greg, he just put him in a dangerous situation in which he accidentally died. Steve phoned Sheriff Larry Costello and demanded to know what went wrong. Why was Patton not charged with first-degree murder? Costello said there simply wasn't enough evidence. Greg's parents were stunned by that statement. There was plenty of evidence if police had actually bothered to collect it. Not only had they not taken prints from the chair or allowed the lab to process the vomit for DNA, but they later learned that all the prints on the Mountain Dew bottle, not only those of Greg's killer or a possible accomplice, but those of Steve and Sharon's and Chief Hansen's, had mysteriously vanished. The only prints on that bottle were those of Detective Green, who hadn't even been there when the evidence was collected. With Padden's trial coming up, Detective Green and Agent Graber and Chief Hansen once again tried to pressure Sharon Meisner into testifying that she saw rope burns on Greg's neck in 1997. She refused to commit perjury, and two and a half weeks before the trial, at the suggestion of Sheriff Costello, Graber launched an unfounded and embarrassing investigation of Steve and Sharon Meisner for bribing and or threatening witnesses. Now we get into the deposition of BCA agent Peter Graber in regard to the investigation of the Meisners for bribing and or threatening witnesses. Quote, you testified a few moments ago that you looked into some concerns expressed about Mr. and Mrs. Meisner possibly intimidating witnesses, correct? Answer, yes, sir. Question, and nothing came of that investigation? There were no charges brought? Answer, correct. Question, and as far as you could tell, they cooperated with you during the investigation? Answer, absolutely. Question, they didn't impede the investigation in any way, did they? Answer, no, sir, they did not. Question, did you ever have any discussion about this case with Sheriff Costello of Clay County? Answer, Sheriff Costello was, had an interest in it, and I know that Detective Green was talking to him on a regular basis. The alleged witness tampering, he's the one that said we should look into it, end quote. That bogus investigation was quickly closed down by Graeber's boss, SAT, SAC Terry Smith, 
Quote, case closed. S.A.I.C. Smith and Chief Hansen conferred following the interviews and agreed that the Meisners represented no serious threat to anyone and had merely been expressing the kind of feelings of frustration and anger which are often expressed by surviving family members of one who has died in a violent manner. End quote. On November 9th of 1998, Patton was found guilty as charged. He was sentenced to 25 years and will be eligible for parole in 16 and two-third years. His attorney filed an appeal based on the fact that Patton was inappropriately convicted of third-degree murder when evidence indicated he was guilty of first-degree murder. The appeal was rejected. In a last-ditched attempt to unearth the truth about Greg's murder, Stephen Sharon Meisner filed a wrongful death suit against Patton. In preparing for that case, their private investigator was able to depose Detective Green, Chief Hansen, Agent Peter Graeber, and Patton's buddy Chris Hawkins. Although Hansen continued to deny any knowledge that Green had enlisted Patton as a confidential informant, Green stated that Hansen was the one who came up with the idea and turned over the contract that he and Patton had signed three days prior to Greg's murder. Quote, question. Were you aware, Chief, of any role Detective Green played or had with Sean Patton in connection with any kind of informant activity? Answer, no, none, end quote. For his part, Chris Hawkins provided information that implicated Patton in an assisted suicide by hanging in another state. Now we get into the deposition of Chris Hawkins, Sean Patton's best friend. Question, do you have any information that has changed your view at all as to whether Mr. Patton may or may not have committed this offence or been involved in it? Answer, yeah, what I found out about Colorado. Question, what is it you found out about Colorado? Answer, like I said before, just that he was involved in a case there. He was tried, I I think he was tried because one of his friends had died, I'm not sure. I think they said that he he was tried for, like, helping him commit suicide or something, end quote. Further investigation revealed that there were two mysterious hanging deaths of young men who bore a physical resemblance to Greg in the Elizabeth and Castle Rock areas of Colorado while Patton was living there. When presented with the names of those victims, Patton quickly agreed to settle the Meisner civil suit out of court. But the horror story doesn't end there. There's also one other little hitch to the story and one other little wrinkle to the story that no one has ever gotten to the bottom of, although various people have tried. Greg's parents tried, various other people have tried, but it all just ended up going nowhere. Greg was accidentally buried in the wrong plot, and in October of 2002, Greg's parents were forced to move his body to a new location. That provided them with an unexpected opportunity to obtain information about the nature of Greg's head wound. They had a second autopsy performed in San Bernardino, California, by a team of five experts headed by forensic pathologist Dr. Monica Rollinger. Dr. Tamata Sinclair, a former forensic psychologist who had taken a personal interest in Greg's case, was present as well. Greg's body was too badly decomposed to provide information about the head wound, but it did disclose something so shocking that even the doctors were stunned. Many of Greg's organs were missing and his brain had been scooped out. Monica Rollinger told Greg's parents the cavities had been filled in with kitty litter. Now we get into the documentation on this. Quote, internal examination, body cavities, there are no rib fractures noted, the chest and abdominal cavity contains autolyzed internal organs mixed with grey-black granular material used to prevent leakage, portions of brain, heart, muscle and intestines are recognised. Neck, examination of the neck shows the neck organs to be completely absent, most probably from the first autopsy, and the area is replaced with paper towel. What remains is the cervical vertebra which appears to be intact and unremarkable. Head. Examination of the head reveals no evidence of trauma. No fractures are observed in the calvarium. The brain is absent and the dura has been stripped off. There is no evidence of basal skull fractures. 
No meaningful interpretation of the findings is possible due to advanced decomposition and absence of many of the organs, particularly the neck organs. End quote. Greg's organs weren't harvested for transplant, even if Greg's parents had granted permission, which they didn't. Those organs were useless to others since the autopsy wasn't performed until at least 34 hours after death. In his official report, Dr. Michael McGee, Ramsey County Medical Examiner, recorded taking hair samples, fingernail clippings, blood, and a tissue sample from Greg's liver, but certainly not his organs and brain. The office of the medical examiner was at the time trying to track down the missing parts of their son. Success didn't seem very likely after almost five years, and even if somebody did present them with an assortment of organs, how could the parents possibly know that they were their son Greg's? A DNA lab report wouldn't have confined them, as it could easily be just as invalid as the fabricated information in the police reports. Now we come to the April 2004 update in the case. In January 2003, Greg's parents reported to Clay County Sheriff Bill Burquist that a second autopsy showed that Greg's body was missing organs. Dr. Michael McGee, who performed the original autopsy at Ramsey Medical Center in St. Paul, Minnesota, stated in his report that he took only hair, fingernail clippings, blood, and a tissue sample from the liver. There is a denial of removal of organs in his report. He allegedly told Sheriff Burquist that he destroyed everything that was taken at the autopsy three years after the autopsy, which is Standard Operating Procedure, or SOP. Sheriff Burquist told the parents that Dr. McGee was now their county coroner and said he would talk to him. One week later, he confirmed that Dr. McGee continued to deny removing any of Greg's organs and said that he only took a small tissue sample from Greg's neck. Now, that's interesting because according to the doctors who performed the second autopsy, examination of the neck shows the neck organs to be completely absent, most probably from the first autopsy, and the area is replaced with a paper towel, end quote. Sheriff Burquist promised Greg's parents he would send them a letter confirming the contents of his conversation with Dr. McGee. According to Greg's parents, however, he did not do so. Oddly enough, soon after Burquist's conversation with Dr. McGee, Dr. Monica Rowlinger, the forensic pathologist who headed the team of experts who performed Greg's second autopsy, became unreachable. Rowlinger's business private autopsy went out of existence. The two thorough certified reports and over 100 photos from the autopsy, which had been promised to Greg's parents and would have documented Greg's missing organs, were not sent to them. Their letters, email and phone calls were not answered. The biggest question of Greg's parents then and now is, who could have gotten to Dr. Monica Rowlinger immediately after Dr. Michael McGee was informed by the sheriff that they were aware that Greg's organs had been stolen? To this day, Greg's murder remains stipulated as a suicide. Sean Padden got away with what appears to be murder concealed as a suicide and was also responsible for other mysterious and suspicious hangings that he also very well may have gotten away with, the adage being that you aren't caught for every crime you may have committed. The more disturbing part about this case is Greg's missing body parts and why they were taken and where they ended up, which has never been explained, and to this day, they still remain missing. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time.
Next, on Unanswered Questions. On August 22nd of 2011, a woman named Gladys Sherby came to visit her son Corey Sherby in Chilliwick, British Columbia in Canada. No one answered her doorbell that day, or knocks for that matter. Then Gladys remembered that she had a copy of the keys to her son's house and decided to enter on her own. What she saw inside left a scar in her heart for life and later launched a dark and mysterious conspiracy theory on the internet which still has no answers. 